Welcome to Beyond the Seminar. I'm Randy Carney, an assistant professor of biomedical engineering here at UC Davis, where each week I sit down with a real-life scientist visiting our department seminar series to share their science. Today on the program is Dr. Payman Ghazi, the co-founder and CEO of Malkova, a company endeavoring to redefine breast CT scans to better visualize microcalcifications, tiny calcium deposits that provide early traces of breast cancer. Payman is an alumnus of UC Davis BME department, having earned his PhD here under the guidance of Professor John Boone in the area of CT imaging. Here's our conversation. So when did you leave Davis, or what was your experience here? 2014, I graduated, and I was a postdoc for about a year. In the same lab? Uh, In the same lab. With John Boone. With Boone, yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, left, went to Bay Area, 2016, um, and just lived in Berkeley, um, um, working a few companies, two companies and then for personal reasons we moved to bay area with mm-hmm. my wife um so the company didn't exist before then even we moved to baltimore um in 20 i think 17 um and i was just doing you know consulting gigs here and there 2018 um and at some point it just you know it just ended it's like gig works and it ended, and um, I was just, you know, like I said, I was, uh, during the talk, I was filing applications for jobs and this and that, and the idea popped in my head, and boom. So you were, were you totally out of breast CT at that time? I mean, in between? Because you did your whole, yeah, I, I mean, went probably... to surgical robotics. Um, okay. Yeah, laparoscopic surgery stuff. Um, that's where I worked in. Um um, but yeah, this radiology is something that just pops in your head. So once it's in your head, it kind of doesn't leave. Um, I'm glad it didn't, actually. So Yeah, of course. Yeah. Your company is called Malkova. You're the co-founder and CEO. Um, and a lot of your work that you described in our, in our seminar this morning was sort of in two directions. One is a novel way to actually do breast CT, computed tomography. Um, And then you're also developing some cool models um, that you call phantoms. We'll talk about that uh, in in a little bit. But first, maybe you could just motivate, you know, what is CT? What is the sort of standard of care that you're trying to improve on? And yeah, maybe how you got into this field. Sure. Um, So I did my PhD with Dr. Boone. He is... Yeah, here at Davis. Here at Davis. Wonderful. Yeah. Welcome back. Thank you. Happy to be back. Um, privileged to be in his lab, and he's one of the well-known figures in CT. Being in his lab, doing the projects that I was given, got to know about CT. So CT, as you said, is, stands for computer tomography. It's um, an X-ray-based imaging um, modality, a way of doing measurement of anatomy or whatever it is that you were measuring. But as the name suggests, it's tomographic. In other words, you go around the object and you measure the object from different angles. So you capture raw data and then there's a whole process of correction, image reconstruction, and post-processing after 
image reconstruction that you need to put in place to turn these images into something nice and useful for radiologists for different applications so ct was invented in 1970 71 mm -hmm. um so in 2021 they celebrated the 50th anniversary of ct at the beginning it was invented for imaging head and it just expanded from that it went from imaging brain to pretty much all part of the body it's the most commonly used imaging modality in practice in the hospitals. There's a very good understanding of the physics of it. Um, the regulatory bodies, they understand it really well. And the industry behind it is completely established. There are reimbursement codes. Everybody knows how to use CT. And that's one of the biggest difference between CT and many imaging other imaging modalities. Um, so it's established imaging modality. Not only for imaging anatomies, um, we use CT for imaging objects, you know, when you travel in the airport, um, you put your baggage through something and it scans it, basically that's, that's CT and that's just a tiny little example for food inspections, we use it for a thousand different things. Um, that's CT. So the idea is that during image acquisition, you reduce the dimensionality of the object from three dimension to two dimension. And then during the reconstruction, you try to bring it back from those data, do two-dimensional data, to three-dimension. It's just back and That's forth. That's where the math comes. That's where the math <laughs> comes to fix. Yeah, exactly. One of the biggest problems of CT is scatter. It's something that one of the, one of the fen fundamental things that um, you learn as you go through CT is scatter in your raw data messes, messes things up. It's just... It, so you this can, is sort of the random reflections of the x-rays that would appear in your image, but then they're not from anything real. It's kind of like noise, right? Exactly. exactly. It presents itself as noise. Um, the problem is that, as I said, you know, in CT, we capture two-dimensional images from three-dimensional objects, and then we back reconstruct them. That reconstruction, the assumption is that all the photons that you received, these are good photons, not scatter photons. But that's not the reality. And that messes everything up. Yeah, you showed some nice data in your talk that it's it depends on which machine you're using, too. It's not yeah. always the same, right? No. You yeah. have higher quality, lower quality, you get more or less scatter. Exactly. It doesn't seem to be tied to the price tag, necessarily. Not a, <laughs> no, no, actually. Um, so it's, it's one of the biggest problems of CT when it comes down to imaging breast, um, something that we are laser-focused on. Um, Typically for cancer detection? Yeah, for an application for cancer detection. Um, it's very important to not only see and not only image the breast at very low radiation dose levels, but also be able to see these tiny little details of, of the breast anatomy or the cancer. The first part, which is the quantum statistics part of it, we cannot do anything about it. It is what it is. That's just physics. But the second part, which is acquiring scatter, we thought, let's just get rid of that problem because there is an engineering solution to that problem. Desi design a system that doesn't pick up scatter. That was the objective. and That's sort of the origin of your company. That was the origin of the company. We ran a lot of simulation, as I shared with the students. We ran a lot of simulation um, simulations to, to evaluate these hypotheses that we have that, hey, if you get rid of the scatter, the visibility of these details are going to be improved. We came up with we came up with two different designs. We built the prototypes for both of them. Um, but down the line, we really stick to one of those designs. And that's where we're going. How come people hadn't sort of thought to do this before? What was the, what do you, what do you think was enabled you to make that link? 
this is how scatter is taught. Um, I was also trained uh, as this, that the scatter is a low frequency phenomenon, which means this is something that um, you can correct for in the post-processing. It's not worth a while to really kill yourself to not pick up scatter during image acquisition. What we realized is um, in our application, when you really improve the spatial resolution of a system, if your objective is to find these tiny little, uh, little details, scatter impacts them. Scatter impacts the visibility of these microcalcifications or these tiny little deposits of calcium, which is the early trace of cancer in many cases, you know, especially in breast. When you pick up scatter, you, it, it costs you visibility of these tiny little details, and you cannot correct for it. So going back to answer your question, why hasn't anybody thought about this? Because the problem that they were trying to solve was not this much detailed. Um, but now, you know, breast cancer, especially if you really want to save lives, you want to build a system that can be used for screening applications. Um, breast cancer screening is low dose. You want to have very high visibility of the tiny details. Um, for that regard, we thought, okay, let's just build a system that doesn't pick up scatter. So once you had this idea, you assembled a team, or is, was it like the like in the movie, the back of the envelope, and then you call up the people and you know build your build your team and start the company, or what was sort of the process? There? Yeah, um, came up with the idea. Um, I was not affiliated with any university with anybody, um, which cost us quite a bit of time in establishing a relationship, basically credibility and gaining credibility. Um, Applying for, you know, federal government provides these SBIR grants. Um, we applied for them, couldn't get, you know, four, um, three, four rounds we applied, we couldn't, couldn't get anything. Until these publications um, came out. And then after that, just the money started flowing in, which allowed us to put together a team, get a place and build a prototype. But, you know, as I was, so the answer to the question is yes, in the early year, year and a half, it was just a grinding process, but it's just necessary for all this stuff. You know, it's, it's, there's, it's nothing unique about Malkova. Um, a lot of startups that go through this process. And, um, for that, it's actually incumbent on the founder or founders, um, to just, to, to stick with the idea and evaluate it and pitch it and get the publications out, get the science out. Through that process, of course, I was lucky that um, first, you know, I have a supportive wife, so that helped quite a bit. Um, just a little bit more than supportive, she actually encouraged me, pushed me to do this. Um, but also, our liability, financial liabilities as founders, um, was low, which is another thing that I always encourage others to do. If you really want to follow the startup path, make sure that you don't have a huge financial liability that requires you do to do some work and make make money 
because there is going to be a time that you're not going to be able to make money for many, many months. So if you have um, liabilities, like if you have a mortgage on a house, a huge mortgage on a house, if you have payments on a fancy car or this and that, um, you may want to consider reducing those liabilities because you're reducing your risk on a company. And we were lucky that we were in Baltimore, so it was quite affordable to get a place. Um, and we were not living fancy, so that helped quite a bit, uh, ease the pain. But then after that, as soon as we started to raise money, we put together a team and... Bought a fancy car, got a big well, mortgage. Oh, yeah, man, <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> so a lot of your work has been in creating these anthropomorphic breast phantoms uh, to make it a little bit more realistic. So, um, yeah, could you talk a little bit about the, the clinical need for that and... How your how your team designed those? The clinical need for it would be okay. Yet let's say we will design a breast CT system. How do you compare the performance of it to what's being used right now, which is mammography and tomosynthesis uh, in clinical practice? How do you compare the performance other than the patient, other than a real human being that goes into both systems? You don't really don't have an object that has the same complexity as a human being. So that was the idea. Like, let's build something. Let's build a breast model that could be compressed. And then that compressed model could be used in mammography and tomosynthesis. And then come up with an uncompressed breast model and build a phantom and use it in breast CT. And then compare the performance of these two imaging modalities. Is the compression that sort of uncomfortable aspect of of mammography, the kind of the big problem you're trying to solve in, in general? Yeah, so compression mammography, um, yes, it makes a lot of women uncomfortable, um, my mom included. Um, but there's a reason from the clinical practice point of view, there's a reason uh, the compression is applied. It's, uh, the science is clear on this. It increases the sensitivity of the device in detecting cancer and specificity of the device. So not only you can detect a cancer, you can tell if cancer is cancer or benign cancer or malignant cancer. So that's the reason for compression in mammography and tomosynthesis. Um, but still, the fact is that it's just, it's um, for many women, it's an uncomfortable thing. And for many women, actually, that's the reason that they don't go um, receive um, the care that is available to them. It's something I forgot, uh, unfortunately, to talk about during my talk, and I would like to, uh, I need to hear myself say these words, that um, if a woman is 40 years old and older, they are entitled to receive a screening, so an affordable care ad mandated, uh, can, uh, you know, all my care mandated the insurance companies to pay for this service. So for you to you, it's mammography right now is the only device that is available to you for finding cancer. So if, um, if you are in that age, just go get it. That's besides the point where the technology that we are developing is besides the point that how do we improve the care uh, that is available to the women who have dense breast tissue. Yeah, so that's something you mentioned we've only really been able to appreciate in the past 10, 20 years is that many patients just have dense breast tissue and the yeah. typical imaging doesn't work. Yeah, um, but again, I want to really drive it home that um, if uh, if you're 40 and you're older, go get a, a mammogram, screening mammogram. Um, you've, it's it's very likely that the mammography can find you cancer. So let's go back. You were, um, you know, your current job and all this amazing work your team is doing has physics, math, engineering, 
things that you know you probably weren't born knowing so you know at what uh, sort of where where did you grow up and and when did science enter the picture for you yeah thank you for that question um so i'm iranian i'm iranian american i grew up in tehran um in iran um i have two brothers both older than me and um my dad is an academician um so uh, we were very much into reading books and the stuff. I realized that I liked math. Um, so I did that. I did well, I think. Um, in college, I went to engineering. Um, and then after that, I worked as an engineer. And then I got into graduate school, followed engineering, electrical engineering. Um, as I was done with my master's in electrical engineering, um, which basically encompassed mathematics and engineering building things um i realized that i the work that i was doing was quite abstract and i was not really enjoying it um so i decided to switch to biomedical engineering so not that far off from my home base um but far enough that made me happy and that would be that would be biomedical engineering and that is the application of the principles of physics um, to solve a problem in a human or an animal, um, that's that was quite attractive to me. So, you mentioned your parents being um, in in academia. Are they disappointed that you started your own company and that they really wanted you to become a professor? Or are they the type that are like, "Hey, you do you"? A typical immigrant parents, I have to say. Um, so my dad um, is a professor. My mom raised us. Um, um, so. No, typical immigrants. Um, my mom, like, what are you doing? Just go and make money. Um, and on the other hand, uh, I never forget. I, I spoke with my dad um, 2019. For the first time, I thought, I, I'm thinking about starting this company. This is exactly his exact word. And he said, if you have a cup of tea in your hand, just put it down and go do it. Strongly encouraged. So there was this kind of a two opposite forces from both of my parents who I dearly love and they love each other and um, I, you know, we have a very good relationship. Um, but yeah, now my parents came to the company two months ago and I showed them the prototypes and that was really the first time I, my mom was asking questions and I saw the smile on her face and she started sharing the information about, you know, her mammogram her mammography experiences. And I realized, oh, okay, I changed her mind. We're up to something here. Uh, but so there's no pressure anymore. That's Thank awesome. God. It took three years. <laughs> <laughs> How did the, what, what are some of the practical uh, steps of, of starting your company? I think, I think probably a, a lot of our student listeners would um, envision themselves along that, that same track. What were some of those early challenges that you faced that you really weren't prepared for? Um, you need to make sure that you have your science on your uh, on your side. In other words, convince yourself that your science works. It's not just nonsense. Um, nobody wants to repeat the mistakes of Theranos. Um, just make sure you don't make stuff up. So do a lot of simulation. Convince yourself that the science works. It can not only science, also the engineering of it works. In other words, not only the physics of it works. Um, you can turn it into a physical thing. Share it with the others. You're going to hear a lot of cultures. You see a lot of cultures. But at some point, it starts to resonate with the others. And that's when the momentum comes to the picture. And that's funding and the support and this and that comes with it. 
Um, but you need to make sure that, you know, that science is on your side. Another thing that I learned on the process, um, now it's natural to me, but on the process I learned and it was difficult for me was how to articulate a business um, proposition. You have something to bring to the market and based, you know, in the U.S. we have open market system. So you need to make sure that you can turn it into a business and you can turn it into a business that is sustainable and it can turn it into a business that not only sustainable, it can scale itself. So with these three components, you need to be able to articulate how there is a business idea here that we can make money out of. And it has this kind of impact on the clinical practice. Um, and that takes many months. Um, that's another benefit of SBIRs. I encourage that everybody does it. That not only you talk about, you have in the SBIR, and writing the grants for SBIRs, not only you need to be able to talk about the science, which is natural to us. We talk about science. It's, it's kind of easy. But you need to talk about the business. You're like, hey, this thing can turn into a product, and this is the unmet need, and this is how I'm going to get into the market. That's the angle. That's they call it the beachhead front. Like in other words, if you want to go to a land, uh, to an island, where is the beachhead front? And what side of this island you're gonna land on? And you need to be able to articulate that and make sense. So not only the reviewers are gonna be reviewers of scientific reviewers, but you get reviewers that are business reviewers. Um, they're like, okay, you, you can come up with the coolest idea in the world, scientifically really sound but you're not going to be funded if you cannot articulate a business um, proposition. Um, and that's something that you will learn if you stick with it. And like I said, I applied four times in SBIRs and got four rejections until I first I got the first one. So you had a kind of unique entry point into your company because you started this with your spouse. So how did that come about? So I tried to... Um, stop her from doing it. So in other words, she really was interested in joining the company and we complement um, each other. It's, it's Finding a co-founder is a tricky thing because you need to make sure that your co-founder is going to be complementary to your skills. If you come up with another model of yourself um, to the company as a co-founder, it's just no, no point in that. Why are you doing this? Um, so in that regard... I knew that would be an amazing thing for the company, but at the same time, um, we have our personal lives, uh, which is, you know, we're raising a child, we're married, but at the same time, now we are running a business together. Naturally, there are going to be many disagreements in the company. Um, so we had a lot of sitting on the table after we put the baby to bed, uh, like, let's come up with a formula that, the, you know, all the terminal in the company that doesn't leak into to, to the family lifestyle. It doesn't work for all many people. In many cases, actually, it has uh, led to uh, catastrophic events uh, for the ma marriage or for the business. But for us, we just talk the heck out of everything. And it works out. It doesn't mean that we don't disagree. It actually, disagreements are now quite clear, quite honest, um, on the table. And it's beneficial, I think, for um, for the business quite a bit. And, and uh, it has strengthened our relationship in personal sense, too. And you took the extra challenge to have a baby, right, at the advent of starting your company yeah. as well. That sounds like an extra That's set. a nice way of putting it. Putting it. <laughs> um, yeah, so he's now three and a half years old, now in 2023, and uh, he, he, he came out like, pretty much uh, within the six months that we started the company. Um, yeah. In a way, actually, 
I don't think it was a bad thing because as a new father, I mean, uh, my wife back then was not with me in the company. So as a new, as a, as, as a new father, you realize that, okay, your wife is working, so I'm going to stay home and take care of the child. And then when he goes to bed, when, when he sleeps and, you know, babies take, take, take a lot of naps, um, you have your computer right next to you, so you do a lot of coding and simulation. In a way, actually worked out in, in, in our case, um, which I realized in, in, it may not work out to it in, in the other cases, in a lot of other people. But I'm grateful for it. It, just, it, it's, it, was, it was not too bad. I'm not going to complain about it. It was not too bad. <laughs> so it's a family business, so I'm assuming, you, you know, he's going to... I hate to call it a family business, actually. <laughs> um, Are you going to bring him in or push him to, you know, well, maybe there's another set of skills that you need. You can start... Uh... Whatever he likes to do, um, we support it as long as he puts a lot of time into what, whatever he does. Yeah. So what would, what would uh, people be surprised to know that you do outside of science? I play music. Um, I play piano. Oh. Uh, yeah. When I was a student, actually, we had a lot of performances on the, not a lot, but we have quite uh, quite a few of uh, performances on campus. Um, with my lab mates, too. Um, uh, one of my lab mates, um, now she's a medical physicist. Um, she was also um, a performer, uh, a dance performer. Um, so on the side, um, we did a few gigs, um, and I joined a band in Sacramento. I played in several um, bands <laughs> in different bars in Sacramento. Um, that's another cool thing about John Boone, um, I have to mention his name, is um, not only he is a great scientist, um, the first thing that he asked me when I joined the lab in 2010 uh, was that, hey, do you need a truck to move your piano to your new apartment? You can borrow my truck. I can, I can help you. Yeah, that's how you know if a professor is classy or not. Because <laughs> the first thing they ask you is not science. The first thing they ask you is, yeah. how are you doing? Yeah. Uh, I always like to ask, um, maybe you can give us a recommendation. What's the last greatest thing that you uh, read or watched? Um, hmm. Reading, I strongly <laughs> recommend um, whoever is interested in following this crazy path that I am on, um, read the works of Clayton Christensen. Um, he was a professor at Harvard Business School, but he has this—he had this neck for um, coming up with different theories. One of the theories he came up with was uh, the disruption theory. Uh, his name is Clayton Christensen. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago, and he has several books. I've read um, his books many, many times. Um, and, you know, most famous one is Innovator's Dilemma. Um, just just read that book. Just grab it, um, read it, and many books that followed after that are just going to strengthen the idea. Great. So where can people find you if they wanted to connect further? Um, LinkedIn, um, uh, or the, the company's name is Malkova. So go to malkova.com. Find me there on LinkedIn. And I shared my email, payman.gazi at malkova.com. Yeah, you guys are hiring, you have internships, lots of opportunities. Yes, yeah. And that's pretty much why I'm here. And one of the main reasons. Love to talk to you, Randy, but at the <laughs> same time, I want to hire UC Davis folks. Um, no, we have full-time and internship positions. Um, so if they're interested, please, please let us know. Awesome. Um, we have positions. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for talking with me. My pleasure. All right. <laughs>